good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. And yes, we are an hour earlier. Um, or so hopefully somebody's out there. <laughs> so we do hope uh, people have woken up, but if you don't tune in to us till halfway through, um, no, you haven't missed us. It's just that the clock has been put forward um, an hour. So uh, daylight staving has officially uh, started. So uh, bear with us and uh, join us uh, nice and early every Sunday morning. But uh, we are here, bright and bushy-tailed this morning. And first up, a big good morning to Stephen Ryan. Morning, good, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, hopefully, our one or two listeners who are awake <laughs> this morning. Um, and it's going to be a lovely day, so we should all be out in the garden as soon as we can, preferably after the program's over. And... Uh, Spring has definitely sprung. Oh, sure has. You know, in the last week or so, the weather pattern seemed to have changed and everything is sort of burgeoning and there's little leafy things happening and flowers popping out everywhere. And in fact, if you don't go out in the garden every day, uh, at least for a cup of coffee or a glass of wine in the evening and have a walk around, you're going to miss something. You know, it's just exciting. It's such a wonderful time of the year. So, yes, I've been, I've been reveling in tulips. Uh, still got some to come out, but uh, at the moment the tulips are looking gorgeous. I've got them all over the place. Great swathes in single colours, which is the way, of course, one should use tulips. Uh, I think I put in 300 uh, this year. Um, and actually, I'm waiting another day or two, and my rhubarb come tulip bed uh, should be looking stunning. Uh, I planted 100 purple tulips all through my rhubarb patch, and... Uh, they were put in rather late because I got the tulips sent to me by the dear Rachel from Tesla's um, and she sent them just as I'd gone away to, to um, do the Normandy and Loire Valley tour. <laughs> oh, so wow. I didn't get them in till right at the end of June, but they're about to flower and I've been keeping the rhubarb in order by plucking leaves and cooking them just so that they're not too big because they're a little advanced of the tulips at the moment. So now I've got these fantastic rhubarb leaves and I've got all these tulips in bud with just a little bit of purple showing at the top. And I think with the red stems of the rhubarb and the purple tulips, it should be a an absolute triumph, uh, hopefully before I go away next weekend. <laughs> So there you go. Well, of course, this was your big experiment for this spring, wasn't yes, it? Yes, that's right, to see how I could use tulips in an unexpected way. And yeah. I figure a rhubarb bed is a fairly unexpected place to put your tulips. Uh, but it is actually a waste of space otherwise. I mean, your rhubarb plants are a reasonable distance apart so that their leaves can come up and sort that's of right. uh, fill out the bed later in the season. Um, so I had all this bare ground, basically. You know, this whole bed that was about... Oh, I don't know, what is it? And the old measurement's about 12 feet long by about 5 feet wide. Uh, and so I just put 100 purple tulips in it. Just dug around and stuck them in. And uh, and I've had one crop of rhubarb off the rhubarb already, which I've cooked and it's in the freezer. Uh, and now I'm going to have a wonderful crop of tulips that won't end up in the freezer. Good. <laughs> so there. We have to say a very good morning to Simon Rickard. Morning, Simon. Morning, Pam. Morning, listeners. Ah, have you done a, any spring experimental beds? Uh, no, well, for me, uh, spring's about cockatoos, actually, coming <laughs> to vandalise my garden oh, in okay. droves. Um, they, they attack anything at this time of year, just for a few weeks of the year, but it's really annoying because it's when plants are making new growths. Um, yeah, it's, it's when all the plants are making their new growth um, and they attack anything, a particular shade of, of green, white or yellow or um, new sort of red coloured growths. So they've been coming, biting the buds off all my tree peony plants. And just oh, no. I know. 
Uh, and they've been coming and uh, gouging out my garlic crop. Um, what else have they been biting off? Oh. Um, the tree peonies are the main thing I'm annoyed about because at the end of my street, there's 70,000 hectares of state forest. But no, they have to come and bite off my tree peonies and they don't eat them. They just pull the buds off. That's even the That's worst bit, the worst isn't it? bit. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, you know they're just avian vandals. They're exactly. not actually getting anything valuable out, no. of your, out of the destruction they wreak. Yeah, that's right. So I'm, uh, you know, running out in the back deck every five minutes, clapping my hands like a crazy man, and <laughs> neighbors well, all that's think I'm normal, mental. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. Yeah, nothing seems to work to deter them either. Once no, they know there's no, a no, bud there that they right. want, that's and when it. you consider a, a sulphur-crested cockatoo lives as long as a human, you know, they and have a really good capacity for learning. Mm. You know, you can fend them off once, maybe, but once they learn that something won't actually hurt them anymore, they they remember that for the rest of their life and yeah. pass it on to all their friends. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, all your plastic owls and CDs hanging up and stuff, that yeah. that buys you a little bit of time, but no more than that. Exactly. So, yeah. Oh, it's a bit depressing, dear. isn't it? Because yes. that wasn't is. a good start. You <laughs> the person, you. <laughs> <laughs> me. Well, I'm happy to say that I've actually picked my first asparagus for the season. So. Ah, well, well done. done. Yeah, yeah. So that's exciting. I love it when the asparagus comes in. Mm. Oh. I've just planted a new asparagus bed this year because mm. oh, okay. my, my asparagus had been growing in a sort of a long alleyway in a narrow bed with a hedge on either side and the hedge has slowly but surely been overdoing the asparagus and so I gave up this year I thought I'm not going to get enough asparagus out of those plants because they're just getting swamped by the Escalonia hedge uh, so I'll, I'll turn that now into a woodland border or something and uh, so I planted a new asparagus bed so they're all coming up with spears but of course I can't Look, touch don't, them no. <laughs> leave them well alone it's really awful I can see these <laughs> Things coming up out of the ground going, oh, I can- no, I can't eat those. Um, so, yes, I'll have to have a year or so in the ground. I bought quite large crowns because I okay. thought I'd give myself a bit of a head start. I didn't buy little tiny ones. Yep. Um, and, uh, and I did fleetingly think of getting fat bastard or the purple one or the whatever but uh, the one I could get easiest of course was Martha Washington so it's Martha Washington again but they still taste good I don't care much yeah mm. yeah, yeah. I, I find the um, the purple ones aren't as prolific mm. Mm. Um, that often's the case with some of these it slightly, is with the coloured yeah. ones yeah, yeah isn't it same with the purple uh, broad beans I and think the them. purple Brussels sprouts we both found remember yeah. and yeah, yeah and um, there was something else purple we both tried one year and it yeah, not quite as, as prolific. They look good. No, though. they look good. Yeah, <laughs> as long as sure. you don't pick them. <laughs> well, that's, the asparagus I grow is I, I grow the one which Digger sells as fat bastard, but its real name is Jersey Giant, ah. and it's ah. um it's an F one hybrid which is selected to have mostly male seedlings because um asparagus plants are, are dioecious, so they're either male yeah. or female. Yep. And the males are the ones with the big, thick, tender stalks, and the females have got quite thin stalks, but they bear the berries, and so to support the weight of the berries, they they deposit a lot of um, silica in the in the stem, so they're actually a little bit woodier and tough. So commercial growers prefer the male plants, and this this Jersey Giant is is mostly male. Ah, yes. So yeah, mine's on its way up too. Can't wait. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'll wait till next year or the year after now. <laughs> And of course, this is the time of year that food gardeners call the hungry gap around the, the spring equinox when all of your winter crops have finished or are starting to bolt and go to seed. But the summer crops, you know, it's too cold to, to yes, sow any of your summer crops. that's right. So pretty much all you've got at this time of year is asparagus, really, and, and sprouting broccoli and... That's it. Yeah, well, I've got plenty of sprouting broccoli. The broad beans are in full flower, so they'll be nice while I'm away. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so somebody else will get the, the 
largesse of the uh, of the broad beans, I think. Um, and uh, I'm still digging Jerusalem artichokes, um, even though they're starting to sprout. I, I baked some last night for dinner with some carrots. And um, so if there's any uh, embarrassing things happens in the studio this morning, we'll know what's going on. And uh, so I'm still digging those and things. But, yes, you're right, it's a bit of a... a hiatus at the it moment. Is. There's not that much going on in the veggie garden that you can actually eat. Yeah. So, uh, although I've been making a lot of winter salads because I have miner's lettuce coming out my mm. orifices. Mm. It comes up everywhere in the garden now. So I rush around picking miner's lettuce and making winter salads out of that as much as possible. Mm. And that's good value because I never have to sow it or do anything and it's just there every year. Mm. It's an interesting plant, isn't it? I, mm. I used to live in the Netherlands and, and we could just buy it in supermarkets over there. Yeah. But nobody takes a scrap of notice of it in Australia. Yeah. It's, it's yummy. It's, it's tender. Good. It's, it's and... got a really nice sort of crisp sort of succulentness to yeah. it. It's not overly flavoursome, I don't think. Tastes like plant material. Yes, it does. It <laughs> tastes a bit like plant material, yeah. Um, but I like Minus Lettuce, and uh, and it hasn't happened for a while, but every year I used to have somebody who would come in with some to ask what it was because they'd found it in the wild okay. uh, or, or to come up in their garden or whatever, and they had no idea what this weird-looking plant was. Um, and one year a lady came in with one in a pot that she'd she'd potted up uh, and came in to ask me what it was, uh, and she left it with me. I thought, oh, minus lettuce, why not? So I planted it out in the garden, and I haven't regretted it since, but it, it is a little uh, super abundant, I have to say. So I've become quite uh, laissez-faire about it. I don't protect it so much. I, you know, if it's in the way, it gets pulled out and maybe eaten, maybe not, depending on what the what the meal is for the evening. Um, and it does come up through other things quite well, in fact, because it's at the moment growing over the bed where my Jerusalem artichokes haven't quite come up yet. Uh, so it's been growing over that bed for the winter. So I've been collecting the... I'll dig up some Jerusalem artichokes and then I make the salad at the same time. Uh, and that works quite well. Uh, and it it's obviously found its way into my new asparagus bed because I've got oodles of it come up through there at the moment. But that bed's going to be for tulips next year. Mm. So once the asparagus is settled, the and I'm not sure yet, but it might be white tulips around mm. the asparagus. I think that should be quite tasteful, um, and uh, uh, or something brilliantly coloured or whatever. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, why start tasteful now? Still? Yeah, well, you said there is that. <laughs> well, actually, the most untasteful thing in the garden at the moment are my I can't remember the cultivar name, but it's a it's a double yellow tulip with red flares all through it, and I planted 150 of those along the side of my little greenhouse and filled the bed up with parsley. Uh, and so I've got this, and it's the crinkly parsley, which always looks prettier in the garden mm-hmm. than the flat leaf parsley. Uh, so I've got the crinkly parsley growing through there and these incredible brilliant yellow and red tulips through this whole bed. And they're all sort of cheek by jowl, so the flowers are almost touching each other. And it's outrageous, and I'm reveling in it. It's great fun. And are you going to leave your tulip bulbs in the ground? Yeah, well, these, these ones are actually in their second year, okay. and they're looking better this, this year than they did last. Wow. Okay. So I'm very impressed. Must be I'm, doing something right. Well, I don't know. Maybe the tulips are doing something right. It might not be me. <laughs> uh, but they're in their second year, uh, and I sent a photo of them off to Rachel because um, I did promise her if I had any interesting shots of how I'd use my tulips that I'd send them to her. So it may well show up on one of their websites or something at some stage. Um, so I you know, sent the tulip parsley combo to her to show her what it looked like, and she was quite excited. And I've told her about my rhubarb, so it better work. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I've got... A week to take that picture okay. uh, and send it off to her. So hopefully it'll be good. And yeah, so next year once the asparagus are well settled, I'll get myself a hundred tulips of some sort or another uh, and whack them in with the asparagus. So it should work well. Curly parsley has such incredible root system. 
They just go down and down and down. Well, then it brings up all the nutrients from low down, doesn't yeah. it? Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. But it's bloody hard to get out when, it you, is. when you're trying to pull the spent ones. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, it's a pretty plant. Uh, I think we should be using it more just as a garden plant. Mm. I like it. I think it looks lovely. In fact, there's a lot of veggies we should be using in the garden. Mm. Um, actually, I'll tell you what I have got, which I'm a bit excited about, and, and it might work out to be something really worthwhile. I got some purple mizuna from um, diggers several years ago, and of course it sell seeds itself all over the bloody place uh, and I don't actually like it very much I like it as a plant but I, I think it's it's sort of chewier and, and mm. it's, it's not a succulent and it hasn't got as yep. good a flavour so I don't actually particularly like it as a vegetable or as a salad green uh, other than for its look but I've got purple mustard greens in the garden and they've hybridised wow and okay. I've got this thing that has great big leaves that are all cut and serrated. Mm, right. And it isn't as, as bitey as the mustard greens is, but it's got more flavour than the mizuna. And its stems are really succulent and, and delicious. Good heavens. So I have my own hybrid and I'm terribly excited. So when it goes to seed, I'm going to start collecting seed. And I might even ring Clive and say, all right, what am I offered? (laughs) (laughs) I have this fantastic new heirloom vegetable. (laughs) Uh, And I don't know what we'd call it, but, you know. I'd, Stephen's surprise. Yeah, well, something like that. You, you know, <laughs> I, I've been trying to make combinations of mizuna and mustard greens, and oh, it doesn't yeah? work. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyhow, so I'm quite excited by that, um, and I've got two or three plants that have come up, um, and uh, so I'll collect the seed, and I think I'll grow that instead of either. Uh, I might get rid of my mizuna, and it can go out into the garden bed somewhere, and I'll I'll grow this sort of hybrid one, which I think is really yummy. Fair enough. So there you go. So I've found my own vegetable. Yep. How good's that? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, time f- I got to some community announcements. Uh, first up, of course, it is the first Sunday in the month. That means Villa Alba is open uh, this afternoon, 1 o'clock through to 4 o'clock. Admission is $10, concession $8, children are free, and afternoon tea is available with a $3 donation. Uh, Villa Alba is at 44 Walmer Street in Kew there, Melway's reference 44H6. And, of course, it's the Historic House and the RJ Hamer Heritage Garden there that's open today. Uh, Now, also, uh, (coughs) just a reminder, there are two gardens open today for Open Gardens Victoria. These are a little way away, though. They're both – they're two Gippsland Gardens – uh, one is Vesta, which is at 78 Montgomery Street in Sale. The other one is Peter's Garden, which is at 19 Harpley Court in Longford there. Both of them open today, 10 o'clock through till 4.30. Entry is $8. Children under 18 are free and students $5. Now, coming up, uh, let me see, 4th of October, so that's in, in another three days' time, next Wednesday, uh, as part of Seniors Festival, uh, the Friends of the Melton Botanic Gardens are taking a guided walking tour. Now, this runs from 1.30 till 3.30. Uh, it's a free event. There will be a free minibus from the Melton Railway Station, uh, but you do need to let them know that you need picking up. Uh, otherwise, you meet at the Depot and Nursery, which is at 21 William Street in Melton there. Uh, You do need to RSVP, so uh, to do that, you phone John Bentley. His number is 97433819. 
and uh, leave a message if unattended and don't forget to let them know if you do need picking up from Milton Railway Station or you can email John at which is uh, friends at fmbg.org.au. That's friends at fmbg.org.au. I thoroughly recommend it too. Uh, I was down at the Melton Botanic Gardens with Plant Trust recently because they're going to register their small eucalypt collection and their eremophila collection. Okay. Um, and I was blown away. It's an amazing garden. So it's big. It's They've huge. done a lot of work, uh, and and it's not just about native plants anymore. They're they're planting dryland plants from all over the world. So they've got a newly planted South African area. They're doing a Mediterranean area at the moment. I supplied them with a few plants for that uh, recently, uh, and so it's it's an incredible project. Um, and it's just there in an open space where you can come and go as you wish. Uh, and some of their sort of wheat belt plants from Western Australia that they're growing in their gardens there. They're a knockout, absolutely fantastic thing. Some of these amazing grevilleas with great long spears of pink flowers and uh, strange-looking acacias and, and incredible eremophilas and oh, really, really interesting place. So uh, I would recommend it to anybody, whether you're a senior or not, to go down and have a look around the Melton Botanic Gardens in due course. It's fabulous. I think it would be really good to get a guided. Uh, tour, oh, it is. Yeah, well, we did that with Plant Trust and yep. a few of the different members of the Friends group took us out in batches and wandered us around the garden, explained how it was working, showed us some of the iconic plants that they've got. Um, it was really good. So I would definitely recommend it. I mean, you sort of think Melton, tourist hotspot, maybe not, but I tell you what, that Botanic Gardens is definitely worth it. Yep. So there you go. And it's all been dealt with by the Friends with help from the, the lucky them uh, on-site council, uh, and it's really good. So there you go. Excellent. Okay, the Australian Plant Society Keelor Plains Group is meeting on October the 6th at 8 o'clock. Now, the speaker is uh, Rhys Freeman. The topic is growing bush food plants, and it's focusing on the most productive and easiest to grow native food plants. Uh, Reese has extensive knowledge of bush foods and bush food plants and is a member of the Prom uh, Country Bush Foods Association. Now, the talk will take place at Raleigh Road Activity Centre. That's at 54 Raleigh Road in Maribyrnong. Uh, and there's a plant sale that commences at 745 uh, If you'd like more information on that evening, you can phone the secretary, Anne, her number is nine double three six three double two eight. That's nine double three six three double two eight. <clears throat> now, friends of Burnley Gardens uh, have got their AGM coming up. Uh, this will be on next Saturday, the seventh of October, and uh, it's going to be uh, a real celebration um, from because it's actually been twenty years right to the day uh, since they formed the uh, the Friends of Burnley Gardens. So uh, many of the inaugural group will be there to help celebrate and the patron, Greg Moore, is um, giving the talk and he was also one of the founding members. Uh, now, Greg is speaking on emerging technology that can be used to great gardening advantage. The title of his talk is is uh, Drones, the Busy Bees for Arborists and Gardeners. Now, as I said, it's on Saturday, the 7th of October. Uh, you meet uh, at uh, the Burnley campus, of course, room 10, 5.30 for drinks and nibbles, 7 o'clock for the talk, 
Cost is free for members or $15 for visitors. Bookings are essential. You can uh, email friends.burnley at gmail.com or you can telephone 9035-6815. That's 9035-6815. Also next weekend, um, the Upper Yarra Valley Garden Club have got an open weekend running both Saturday and Sunday. Now, there'll be six gardens all up that you can visit, $20 for all six gardens or $5 per single garden, uh, and it's discounted to $15 for groups of 10 or more. Children under 16 are free. Now, it runs from 10 through to 4.30 on both days. You follow the signs along the Warburton Highway from Launching Place to Warburton and start at any one of the six gardens. Now, to find the addresses of all the gardens, you do need to go to the website and it's Upper Yarra Garden Club, all one word, dot com. So uh, all lowercase, all one word, Upper Yarra Garden Club, dot com to get a list of all those gardens opening up. All right. Uh, I might just also quickly mention uh, that uh, the uh, friends of Cranburn, the growing friends, have got a plant sale coming up down at Cranburn. This will be running on Saturday and Sunday, the 14th and 15th of October, 10 through to 4 on both days. The location, of course, is the Royal Botanic Gardens, Cranbourne, uh, down there, corner of Bellato Road and Botanic Drive in Cranbourne. They'll have a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots, uh, priced from $3 upwards. Stephen, of course, we should remind oh, yes, next people. Weekend. Next yes. weekend. It's finally coming. Yes. You seem to have been talking about it for yeah, ages. Yeah, it seems to have been forever. Um, yes, the Garden Lovers Fair for 2017, 8, uh, 7th and 8th of October at the property Bolabek on Mount Macedon Road. Uh, it will be, will be well signposted on the weekend, but it is on the main road when you come off the Calder Freeway. Um, up Mount Masset and turn off, you'll go past the gate, which is on your right-hand side, about K and a half up. Um, so just keep your eye out for signs. The car park will be open from 9.30. The event starts at 10 uh, on both days. Uh, I think we've got about 30 stall holders going to be there, flogging all sorts of plants and, and other garden wares. Um, Simon will be there to do a talk on the Sunday. I'll be there to do a talk on the Saturday. Um, there'll be other speakers as well. I think Attila's doing a talk. There's, there's quite a number of people who are going to be doing uh, talks on different topics throughout the two days there'll be a coffee van there'll be food um so you know and there's a and it's a lovely time of the year to have a walk around Bolabek. um so i'd thoroughly recommend it it's ten dollars which gets you entry into the garden and the fair um which i think is good value and uh, there's plenty of parking space and Bolabek should be looking stunning at the moment so definitely worth it next weekend 7th and 8th for the garden lovers fair so excellent be there yep definitely Simon, you've run a, a gardening workshop, but you've got two more coming up. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> just uh, they're, they're on Thursdays. They're a sort of midweek workshop. So, you know, not everybody's a- able to come. But um, uh, the reason we, we ran them in midweek is because the venue we're using is a place called Casa Alegre in Trentham, which is accommodation. And so weekends is booked up. It's a beautiful um, house on a big rambling acre um, sort of town block, very short walk into the township of Trentham. 
um, and it's got a lovely studio where I can deliver a lecture. So um, last week we uh, guests came up and we started off at my garden, had a little sneak, sneaky look at my uh, woodland garden, and then I did a workshop on uh, seed sowing. <clears throat> so we, we looked at how to direct sow seeds in my vegetable garden and how to prepare the soil to the correct tilth and so forth. And then we moved down to Casa Allegra and um, um, had really nice lunch, beautifully catered lunch and a glass of curly flat wine. And then in the afternoon... Got me when, suddenly. <laughs> yeah. It was sensational, Stephen. You should come along. And then yeah. in the afternoon, um, um, everybody relaxed on the big couches and I did a lecture on heirloom vegetables, a sort of history of heirloom vegetables. So that was the last one. But the, the next workshop, um, which is on the 26th of... October from memory. Yes, right? you're right. 26th of October. As long as you're there. I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm calling it an audience with the flower of heaven. So I'm going to be talking about tree peonies and, and visitors are able to come and view my own personal tree peony collection. If the cockatoos yes, are going to cockatoos <laughs> allowed. <laughs> um, so yeah, they can come and see my tree peony collection. And then um, after lunch, after we've had a nice lunch again, I'll be talking about... Um, yeah, the, the really interesting history of the tree peony because it, it, it began as a medicinal plant. So it was first brought into Chinese gardens as a medicinal plant for the very strong smelling roots. And anyone who's had um, Chinese traditional medicine would know this, this smell straight away because it's a very common ingredient in most um, sort of Chinese medicines. So you'd know the smell straight away. And um, the original wild plants, well, Tree peonies are descended from four wild wild ancestors and they all have kind of white or very pale pink sort of greyish white coloured flowers, not very interesting really. Um, But when they were grown for medicinal purposes, you know, you'd grow acres and acres of them and occasionally a seedling would pop up like Stephen's vegetable is bred that was something a bit different. Maybe it had a pink flower or a red flower, a double flower or a purple flower or whatever it was. And those ones were taken out of the, the fields and grown as ornamentals. And at some stage in its history, the, the tree peony became, um, you know, very highly coveted and a tree peony bush was worth its weight in gold, which, Ooh, you know, for a big oh, bush... It's... Actually, if you've got a collection, you don't want them to be worth their weight in gold. No, that's right. <laughs> They're worth nothing these days, folks, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. unless you're a cockatoo. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, and then just talking about how they, um, you know, how they're thought of in Chinese um, culture. Because if you think about it, I mean, tre- the image of the tree peony appears everywhere in Chinese culture from kind of, you know, golden sil- silken imperial robes to plastic takeaway crockery. You know, in China, it's the unofficial national flower. People love the image of the tree peony everywhere. And so I'm going to talk a bit about that and how it um, moved from China to Japan and then from uh, Japan to, to Europe and, and from Europe to America and and so forth. So that's what I'll be talking about in the second lecture. And then in the on the third lecture, which is on November the 30th, um, uh, sorry, the third workshop day, I should say, because what they are is basically a whole day. You get uh, a hands-on workshop in the morning and um, a, a lecture or something like that in the afternoon after you're feeling a bit relaxed after your glass of wine. So um, the, the third um, workshop is called Of Birds, Bees and Flowers, The Sex Life of Plants. And so I'll be in that one. I'll be talking about the sex life of plants, which is so interesting because, you know, what what a flower is is the sex organs of the plant. You know, so when we oh, next you time you it's not a pretty thing that's just there for us to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, well, next, no. next time you stick your nose in a rose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. You're, you're probably pollinating. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be talking about the the different strategies that plants have for their pollination and uh, for their uh, propagation. Um, 
which will be kind of interesting and funny at the same time. And uh, in the afternoon, we're going to have a bit of a walk around um, and look at the uh, the garden there at Casa Allegra and talk about some of the plants, look at their history and, um, you know, um, some of the lore about them, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Great. So how do people book for them? Well, um, we're using a, a ticketing agency called Tickety Bow. Um, and so if you go to ticketybow.com.au and search for the Rickard Garden Series, or if people um, just go to my website, simonrickard.com, they'll find the information there. Okay. So then they can they can book online. There's also a phone number to ring if they want to speak to a human. Um, you can do that too. And, um, yeah, come up, to, come up to Trentham and come Great. to the spring workshops. Great. Yeah. Um, how old is the garden at Casa Allegra? Well, the the garden itself is probably dates back to the eighties, I would say, but it's only been recently taken over by oh, new okay. owners who've renovated it. And the nice thing about the garden is that it, it well, in fact, there are trees that are much older than that there on the site. Um, and so they've they've edited the garden. You know, they've pulled out all the old junky things and left some really nice trees, and then they've planted new ornamental plantings and a new lawn and so forth. Okay. So, like most gardens, it's a, it's a work in progress with some things that are established and other parts that are still. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, very beautiful, very yep. very beautiful um, venue. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. All right, it is uh, high time we invited our listeners to join us. If Uh, they're out there. (laughs) You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show and, yes, we did start an hour early this morning because uh, we had to. Basically, Daylight Saving has come in and uh, with a vengeance because it's Mm. always hardest on the first Sunday morning to adapt. Oh, yes. Uh, So uh, if you are wondering what's going on, uh, we are here. We'll be running through until the new time of 9.15 this morning. So do feel free to join us. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Stephen, let's have a start with some of your plants. Right, I'm, well, I'm, before it drops its petals, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I have managed to get in here intact a plant of Canadian bloodroot, Sanguinaria canadensis. Um, when I walked into the studio, Simon said something about, "Oh, you've got it on the day," <laughs> uh, and it almost is like that. I mean, it's one of those plants that is exceedingly ephemeral. Uh, it flowers for a very short time. If you if you have your Sanguinaria out for four or five days, you're probably doing quite well. Um, it has these pristine little white um, poppy-like flowers, and it isn't, funnily enough, in the poppy family. Um, and um, they're just crystalline. They're just the most beautiful little flowers. And because it lasts for such a short time, that's part of its charm for me. Because uh, I know I have to rush out in the garden and see my sanguinaries in flower uh, whilst they are, because they'll only be there for a few days. And in fact, in the garden at home, I've got the sanguinaria coming up through a colony of spring flowering cyclamen, cyclamen repandum. So I've got these magenta cyclamen sort of shuttlecocks everywhere, and in between them have popped up these little white poppies, and it's so cute. Um, it's not the world's easiest plant to grow. It is a, a North American woodlander, so it likes an acidy soil, plenty of humus, um, a dappled, shady sort of area, perhaps with plenty of winter light coming in, but some shade for the summer when they uh, when they need it. Um, it does have another string to its bow. Its leaves are pretty, mm. and so they're just coming up now, and they're sort of uh, almost maple-shaped sort of leaves, and they're a, a lovely soft sort of grey green, and they get up to or in the old measurements, three or four inches across, uh, and the leaves sit up for quite a long time. 
The so. leaves remind me always of the, the, the shield front on a staghorn fern. They've yeah, got you're that, right. Something uh, along similar that. sort of veins. and. Although the other plant that I know it looks very much like in a miniature version is the plume poppy, uh, Maclea, which is not something a lot of people grow, so it probably doesn't help you to get a mental picture of the plant. But uh, And they are both in the same plant family, so it sort of makes some sense. But um, uh, Sanguinaria is a gorgeous little plant. Apparently it has uh, chemicals in it that are now being used for um, treating uh, cancer. And I've had a few people asking me about it uh, as a as a uh, cancer curing drug, apparently. Okay. Um, but I think it's a charming little plant. There is also a very very desirable double flowered form, which tends to last in flower for longer. That look like little water lilies, which mm. is really sweet. But I still have a soft spot for the for the wee single. Mm. I think it's a lovely thing. So Sanguinaria canadensis, Canadian bloodroot, uh, a worthy little woodland plant if you've got somewhere to grow some woodland plants. And I mean, you don't actually have to have a woodland, but you do need to have a dapple shaded sort of yep. coolish aspect with plenty of humus in the soil to grow these sort of plants. Yep. So there we go. So it's a charmer. Uh, I guess another thing from the same continent um, are the uvularias, uh, the merry bells. And the one I've brought down is uvularia sessilifolia, uh, cobblewood gold, which is a bit of a mouthful. And anybody who's got a medical background will realise that uvularia is, is named after um, that bit of skin that hangs down the back of your throat, oh. your uvula. <laughs> and so the botanist who named this plant wasn't a romantic by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in America, they're known as straw lilies um, or, in fact, um, um, merry bells as well. And uh, and the, um, the flowers are little tiny... Uh, Sorry, Stephen, yes, yes, Simon's rushing around the studio annoying me. LAUGHTER uh, um, the um, the flowers are sort of well, it's called a straw lily because the flowers are sort of a strawy colour, and this particular form, cobblewood gold, the leaves look fairly ordinary at the moment, but as the flowers finish, the leaves will get gold streaking through them, and so the leaves are quite a pretty variegate uh, for later in the spring. It only grows to a few centimetres tall, probably fifteen twenty centimetres tall at the most. Uh, it's one of the smaller species in the genus. There's one called, funnily enough, Grandiflora, which is a much bigger growing beast with a bit more yellow in the flowers. And again, they're a woodland plant. They like similar conditions to the Sanguinaria, um, so you know, coolish, shadyish spot uh, suits it well uh, and it has a slightly creeping rhizome a bit like a Solomon Seeley sort of effect so uh, I think the uvularia is a lovely little things and it's a damn shame they were named after that bit of skin hanging down the back of your throat <laughs> uh, really makes me laugh when you find out what some of these names mean I think it's part of my uh, sort of one of those sort of harmless pursuits I have of you know I find a plant have no idea what the name means got to find out and when you do it can sometimes be a surprise so there you go you will never think about uvularias in the same way again <laughs> you won't no okay we're going to go to our first call oh, hooray oh so Someone's somebody's awake. awake good thank god for that <laughs> okay we're going to go to uh, Hannah who's in Seaford good morning Hannah Oh, good morning. Yes, I'm definitely awake. And good. first I want to say, I got a bus and a train and another train and another bus to go and see a garden in Trentham through the Diggers Club, I think a couple of years ago. It was your garden, Mr. Ricard. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely gorgeous. Thank I you really for coming. It's it. very kind of you. It was lovely. But the, I'm ringing again about this bulb that doesn't flower. Um, you couldn't help me unless I knew the name of it. And I realised as soon as I put the phone down, it's a, a bulb I grew up with in England. The name is Cocrosmia. Ah. Okay, so it comes up every year, lots and lots of leaves. 
but barely a flower. And all around here it's in full flower with lots mm. of lovely orange flowers. So. Yeah, well, I would have thought of Crocosmia as almost being, well, it is in fact weedy. <laughs> uh, yes, the, yeah, yes, the I wild forms. Take it out yeah, because it yeah. wasn't flowering, but I gave up. It is, it, it, it's prolific, but no flowers. So what can I do? The, the garden forms can get a bit congested over a few years and that reduces their flowering and you end up with these big, dense clumps of foliage. Is it one of the garden forms, do you know, or is it just the wild woody? Actually, I think I got it from the Diggers Club years ago. Okay. Oh, so yep. it's probably one of the garden forms, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, look, it might be worth... Um, well, there are two things, I think, would, that would make it not flower. One is that the, the clumps are too congested yeah. and the other one is that it's in too much shade. So could could that be a problem for it, I do you think? I think both of those things are true, actually. Right. Um, I tried to dig it out, but with no success. I thought I had dug it out, but back it came as proliferous as ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's why some of them do become weedy. They are actually hard to get out of the ground. Crocosmias form a, a corm on top of a corm on top of a corm yes. on top of a corm, and you end up with this great string of corms underneath them because the, in most cormous plants, the old corm rots away, but the crocosmia seems to keep them forever and so you can end up with this huge massive corms and, and it's any wonder they sort of almost strangle themselves out with um, the vigour they've got so I think Simon's right I'd shift it out into a sunnier spot I mean you probably won't ever get rid of it from where it is because you'll leave some bulbs behind or corms behind so uh, I, need, I need more serious spade work yes I think you do need <laughs> some serious spade work go and get a nice sharp spade um, yep. and as soon as the plant's dying down it'd probably be a good time to do it because then you can find it uh, I think okay. this business about waiting till things are is all very well. But oh, no, no, that doesn't work at all. No, you can't find the damn things <laughs> half the time or you stick your spade right through the middle of it. Exactly. Oh, uh, look, thanks, thanks very much. I love your programme and thanks very much. That's a pleasure, Mitty. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks Good on you. Bye. Bye. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. 94190155. That's 94190155. We have Stephen Ryan and Simon Rickard in the studio this morning, so uh, do give us a call. Okay, um, Stephen, let's go on right, to well, the next one. All right, well, I might finish off my woodlanders. Um, I've got an Asian one here called Cyanelsis, uh, Cyanelsis aconitifolia. And it's actually in the daisy family, although its flowers are tiny and you've got to really look at them closely to realise it's a daisy. It just gets this spray of funny, tiny, wee little flowers that comes up late in the summer, early autumn. But it's grown for uh, for its foliage effect more than anything else. Uh, and it does have a leaf like a monk's hood, hence Aconitifolium. Uh, and when its leaves first break through, they've got little white silky hairs all over them. And when they're really tiny, they look like little mushrooms escaping out of the ground. Um, and so it's one of those plants that I just love watching erupt each spring. Uh, its leaves can get up to around about three or four inches across on a well-grown plant. Uh, in flower, the plant can be uh, best part of 90 centimetres or more. Or tall okay. um, and it makes quite respectable clumps again it's a woodlander so it likes a, a an acidic compost enriched humusy soil uh, with light but not too much direct sunlight and adequate moisture right through because it does grow right through into the s- summer autumn so it's not one of those that comes up does its thing and dies down again so it stays up for a fairly long time um, a lot of the books are dismissive of the flowers but they are quite pretty in this sort of eucharistic sort of way like a eucara eucharistic there's a thought <laughs> um, appropriate for word. Sunday morning yes that's very good for Sunday morning um, it's spelled with an H not a U <laughs> you um and so i think they're quite pretty but it is for its foliage that you grow it um and i better spell cyanelsis in case somebody's wanting to look it up because it's not an easy name it's s-y-n-e-i-l 
E-S-I-S, Cynelsis. And there's only two species, apparently. Um, uh, I haven't been able to track down the other one, so I'm not sure whether it's in the country or not. Um, I think it's Palmata or something, I think is the other one. Mm. So very, very pretty plants. And it's one of those things that I'd never heard of until about five or six years ago. And suddenly I saw it somewhere or it was listed somewhere. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I better find mm. out about it. So um, I promptly did and promptly bought it um, and certainly haven't regretted it. It's a, it's a charming little plant. And it seems to have, abs- you know, even in a, if I was living up the top of Mount Macedon with six foot of deep topsoil in a cool foresty area, even there I don't think it would take off. It's not a fast plant. No, no. <laughs> no so. It's 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 a slow clumper, so it's certainly not going to be a, a, a thug or anything like that. Mm. And I, I think it's a charming little woodland daisy mm. from China, Cynelsis. It's striking. Yeah, it is. It's a really it's interesting beautiful. leaf. Something, Very interesting. Something different. That's what I love about some of these woodlanders. They, they, there's all sorts of interesting foliages and textures mm. and forms with them that make them seriously worthwhile growing. Mm. Um, so I would recommend to anybody, no matter how small your garden is, you should have at least three or four acres of woodland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Yes. So that's the other woodlandy one I brought along. Okay, And then fantastic. I've got a couple of trees, basically. Okay. Um, and this one might interest people who are interested in uh, ornamental edibles. Um, Amelanchia. The Juneberry or Shadbush. Uh, it was very popular with Edna Walling. It was one of her favourite plants was Amelanchia. She'd plant them in copses uh, because they make this lovely, airy, light little tree or large shrub. I mean, where does a shrub finish and a tree start? I'm not quite sure. But um, they, they, they're sort of either small trees or shrubs with delusions of grandeur. Um, and uh, they're light and airy. They get these gorgeous little white flowers at this time of the year. Again, fairly short-lived. The flowers are only there for about a week and, and then the ground is covered p- uh, in petals for a few days, which is also charming. Um, it then produces a little blackish berry, which is quite edible. Okay. Um, um, I've often been seen browsing them in Normandy when we're, when we're doing our tours in the summer over there and all these people go, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, you know, they're sort of frightened I'm poisoning myself because most people don't know you can eat a shad bush. Um, and, of course, its other claims to fame is that when they do become tree-like, they get a lovely grey trunk, a nice smooth grey trunk, and their autumn foliage can be absolutely stunning. So you've got spring flowers, edible little blackberries, uh, beautiful autumn foliage, a lovely light airy form. In fact, it would be the perfect plant to create a, a, um, a sort of quarter-acre woodland with to grow all these other plants I've been talking under Mm. Um, because it it doesn't have too invasive a root system. Uh, It casts just the right sort of light shade that would make a perfect woodland plant and it does other things through the year as well Mm. so that you've got something when some of your woodlanders are looking a bit ordinary. So Amelanchia and look, this one's labelled as Asiatica. Um, I don't think anybody in Australia is really sure, including myself, which one's which. Uh, they're all so similar. Mm. Uh, apart from Pumula, which is a dwarf one, uh, I find Canadensis, uh, Lamarckii, Lavis, uh, Asiatica. Mm. I'm not altogether sure anybody's got the right name on any of them. And I don't know. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter which ones you get. Uh, the only main difference is that um, canadensis tends to have a slightly suckering habit, so you'll end up with a thicket of stems. Uh, and certainly lavis, when it becomes a decent-sized plant, seems to be single-trunked. Mm. Uh, but you won't know that when you buy one. And that's only if you get them on their own roots. They're often yeah. grafted onto hawthorns as well, and yeah. sometimes you can end up with a thicket of hawthorn around this poor little tree. So uh. if, you, if you get an amelanchier grafted yeah. onto hawthorn, make sure you control the suckers. Yeah. And yeah. I've actually had them grafted on rowan as well. 
there you go. The ensorbus, yeah, because they suddenly sh- shot up from the understock, and I thought, my God, <laughs> there's a rowan tree under there. Uh, I prefer them on their own roots if I can get them that way. Some of the growers won't propagate them on their own roots. This young plant is actually a cutting-grown plant, so it's on its own roots. And I can't really see any need to grow amelanchia as a grafted plant. I think it's just an expediency thing from the point of view of the growers. Um, so if you can get them on their own roots, I definitely would. Um, and I think they're a, a, a rather underrated. I would have thought with a plant with the famous name of Edna Walling somewhere behind it would have kept its popularity. But it's it really hasn't. You don't mm. see them around much mm. at all, and I think it's rather sad. It seems to be reasonably hardy. I think it should grow around most suburban areas of Melbourne. doesn't want to get deadly dry, but it's not water-hungry. Mm. So, yeah, I think amelanchias are a beautiful, beautiful plant. So there you go. So this one I've got is supposedly amelanchia mm. asiatica. <laughs> I'm not prepared to take that as, as, as rote. It's just the label it came with. Um, and in fact, if they are on their own roots, some of them will take quite seasonally wet soils too. Yep. So if you've got an area that's a bit wet in spring, you know, that dries out in summer, they're an ideal one for that sort mm. of spot too. Yeah, they're often sort of riparian things in the wild. So they'll grow along streams and, and what have you in the wild. So yes, it's actually part of their habitat thing. Mm. Um and it did. It always astounded me when I found out that Edna Walling had picked up on it because it's it's such an obscure sort of tree. Mm. It's not the sort of thing you'd expect a landscaper of any ilk to necessarily go. Oh, we're going to plant some of those here, and we'll have some more of them over there. Um, uh, because most landscapers tend to go for you know things that are fairly obvious and things that are reasonably readily available. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have thought Amelanchia was being produced in vast quantities when Edna Walling was uh, in the trade. So, yes, it always struck me as odd that she grabbed, not that she grabbed the plant as a plant to use because it is fantastic, but it's not one of those things I would have thought would even come into people's sort of view Mm. uh, as a rule. So, yeah, so think about Amelanchia and if you are one of those um, um, edible plant nutters who have to have things that have something edible on it, you can. uh, You would have to pick an awful lot of berries to make a meal. (laughs) It's one of those, and, and because they can get quite tall, you might not be able to get at them in, in due course. Um, but um, it's sort of nice to know if something is edible, um, even if it's tenuously so. But I'm sure you can make, I don't know, shadberry jam or mm, some damn they, they thing. They taste nice, aren't they? I mean, they're yeah. a bit sort of peachy or something, like a yeah. tangy peach. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But they are quite tiny. But I mean, they're about the size current of a size. current, yeah, mm. maybe even slightly smaller than your <laughs> average current, actually, <laughs> thinking it through. Um, and they come in little sort of clusters, um, like you would pick currants, I guess, in a way. Uh, but I like it just as a pretty ornamental plant. Mm. And I've got one in the garden at the nursery, which I think is Lamarckii, one of the tree ones that I propagated years ago from a cutting. And it's got a trunk on it now probably 15 to 20 centimetres in diameter. Uh, It's probably four metres tall now. And it's just a blizzard of white this weekend. It's just looking absolutely Mm. stunning. And people are walking underneath it and not noticing. (laughs) I have to go, look up. Look up. Look up. (laughs) There it is. Look, what about that? So, um, but yeah, lovely tree. And in the autumn, Mm. its leaves can go the most beautiful red. Mm. So there we go. And finally... I've bought something slightly bizarre along, uh, which is unlike me. Um, I've bought a New Zealand cowrie, uh, Agathus australis. And people get confused because they think Australis means it must be an Australian native, but of course Australis means southern, and New Zealand is definitely southern. Um, and so it's the one species of Agathus that comes from New Zealand, and it's one of those wonderful unconifer-like conifers uh, with a Gondwana connection because we have three species in Australia. New Zealand has one. New Caledonia has about eight, mm. uh, which is bizarre. Uh, so it's sort of that sort of, Gondwanary connection thing. And 
Of all of the species, the New Zealand one is probably the most cold hardy. Um, so people in frosty areas, this is probably the one to go for. And it's the only one that comes up seriously brown as a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the theory is that a lot of the New Zealand flora has brown in the foliage, particularly in juvenile forms of things, because when the giant mower existed, birds don't see brown as well as they see green. And so the theory is that a lot of plants developed this brown look so that they could get going before the mowers would notice they were there. And often they go green as they get older. So once mm. they get above mower height, yep. uh, they, they go into green. The lancewoods are a perfect example of that, the pseudopanaxes. In fact, they have a juvenile form that's so different from the adult form. At one stage, they were put in two different genera, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is really weird. Um, so it comes up as this sort of brownish, coppery, cinnamony sort of coloured plant with broadish looking needles that look more like ordinary leaves than in fact conifer needles and of course it's a cowrie so they can grow exceedingly tall but none of us will live long enough to worry (laughs) so plant away and enjoy and I might add the the cowries are interesting because they don't have a particularly big or invasive root system Uh, so they're not going to lift your house off the stumps unless of course you have to plant it right against the wall and then the trunk will push the house over um uh they won't lift paving they don't do any sort of in fact they're used a lot in new zealand as street trees now um you go to some of the sort of northern south island and 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 north island and there's quite a number of towns now that are planting cowries as street trees uh and they're very statuesque they're very upright and tall and they're they're quite symmetrical in their form so they look like they've been put together by a committee uh and they're a really interesting and strange southern hemisphere conifer and Dare I say, at the risk of being howled down, I think they're more interesting than all of my pine to look at. Was that a bad thing to say? <laughs> um, I find the wool of my pine somehow, somehow hard to get my head around uh, for what sort of context it could have in a garden. Uh, they make a really good imitation plastic tree, Christmas tree for some years in a tub, but once they get beyond that, they become a pink, pimply power pole with a... Top knot, and I really can't I, quite. I like them. I, I think. I mean, the, the nice thing about Wallamai pines to me is that they're they're narrow. They're tall, mm. but they're very narrow. They don't take up a lot of yeah. sort of three dimensional. Which the cowries do, of course, too. Yeah. Mm. So they uh, those sorts of trees can be quite useful. Mm. Uh, but once the Wallamai starts shedding its lower branches, I'm not sure about it anymore. Uh, whilst it's got its low branches, it can look quite good. True. Uh, there was a lovely tree of it uh, in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. Uh, it, they've got this sort of weird area in one corner of the gardens where they've got. These these great big fiberglass dinosaurs and they've got uh, a monkey puzzle and a woolamai pine and a and and a uh, i think they've even managed to grow a couple of cycads i can't remember now but it's got this sort of supposed jurassic look about it and uh, they've got a young woolamai pine there which looked quite handsome actually at about four meters i suppose uh but i wonder once they start getting above that what their garden value is i have to say the cowries do get beautiful trunks mm because they get this lovely patchy bark that peels mm. off in chunks, a bit sort of... There's a huge one at Melbourne Botanical Gardens, actually, oh, yes, if you want big, to see the yeah. mature bark. Yeah, beautiful tree. Leopard skin. Yes. So, yeah, so there you go, the New Zealand cowrie. And I do a bit of collecting of cowries. I always try and have a few different species around in the nursery. So I think at the moment I've got all three Australian species available, uh, Robusta, Atropurpurea, and Microstachia. And I've got one of the New Caledonian ones, uh, Agathus morii, and I've got the Vanuatuan and Fijian species uh, macrophylla. Uh, I've only got one plant of that at the moment. But, uh, yeah, so I'm sort of collecting them a bit. I don't know why I don't sell many, but I quite enjoy having them around. They're just sort of fun plants. Fair enough. So there you go. There's all my bits. Great. 
Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> I should mention that uh, National Bird Week for 2017 is coming up, 23rd to the 29th of October. Now, this is where um, uh, BirdLife Australia uh, runs an official um, Birds in Backyards where they ask the general public to count birds in their backyards. One more in cockatoo, fact, two more cockatoos. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're going to be in <laughs> seventh heaven. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Last year, uh, the Aussie Backyard Bird Count saw a record of 61,000 uh, Australians Good. take the time out to, uh, to count more than 1.4 million birds. So they're hoping to beat that record this year. And uh, <clears throat> you don't have to actually count them in your backyard if mm. you don't want to. You can also count them in local parks, in botanic gardens, schoolyards or beaches. So you don't, you're not confined to your backyard if you don't want to. But uh, Do you have to de- – well, I guess you have to designate where you've been spotting, though. Oh, yes, you? Yeah. you would have to designate, yeah. Mm. Now, to, to assist in doing the count, um, you actually have to download an app. And then oh, the app. Oh God! This technology <laughs> stuff. Well, then the app um, apparently facilitates the full count, and all the statistics yeah. go through to. Uh, oh, I'm sure it's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely everything. So you can download uh, at uh, the App Store, or you can get it on Google Play. And now that app is available as from today, which is why I'm mentioning ah. it today, even though. Uh, <clears throat> National Bird Week itself isn't till 23rd to the 29th of October, but uh, they're really hoping Beat that... Beat the rush. <laughs> yes, that lots and lots of people will, uh, will take part in this. Um, so uh, they found uh, in 2016 uh, Australian bird watchers recorded more than 583 species. Goodness. Um, with, of course... Uh, you'd guess this one, I think. Rainbow lorikeet, noisy miner, and Australian magpie were the ones that topped the list. But Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> absolutely. Mm. Sulfur crested cockatoos, look out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so the, the new updated uh, app is available as from today. Uh, so if you'd like to take part, I'm sure. Uh, They'd love you to uh, to participate, and it is uh, a way of just finding out whether, you know, ever mm. increasing, encroaching urbanisation, what effect that's having on mm. our Australian well, native birds. Sometimes it's negative, but sometimes it seems to be positive. It might There's be some, positive, yeah. and yeah. some birds seem to move into areas that you've never seen them before. So it's always interesting to mm. know that information. Exactly. I mean, I only in the last three years <coughs> we've had king parrots move in. Never had them at Masseton before. Okay. I'm convinced. I've lived there most of my life and I'd never seen a king parrot in our area until about three or four years ago. Mm. And now I have some that come and sit on the veranda and wait for me to get them some seed. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Very clever, those birds. They, yes. They, they suck you in straight away. Right. Okay. Um, now, if you do want more information about it and also some wonderful articles on things like um, – like uh, how to uh, bring more uh, Australian birds into your own garden. Uh, there are two websites. Uh, one is birdsinbackyards, or one word, dot net, or you can go to BirdLife Australia's website, which is just birdlife.org.au, and you'll find all sorts of interesting articles and also uh, lots more information about uh, not only about how to... Uh, participate in the in the bird count but also they have um uh some ideas for teachers and school school oh, yeah. children's how they can get involved uh as well as as i say lots of gardening tips on encouraging birds into your own backyard so mm. oh, uh, apparently you plant tree peonies 
Oh, yes, exactly, that's right. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, now, I should mention that in conjunction with, um, with uh, Bird Week, uh, down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, they're going to be running an all-day workshop that's also all about Australian birds because, of course, birds are some of our pollinators. Yeah, exactly. So uh, now this will be running um, on Sunday the 29th of October. Now, it can actually start, you've got a choice depending on, on which sessions you want to oh. go to, but it can start at 7.30am running Goodness through me. till 3 or 9.30am running through till 3. So if you're a real enthusiast, you can have an early start. Or you can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of those <laughs> things. But uh, you do, of course, need to register. Now, from 730 There'll be an optional opportunity to participate in the What Bird Is That presentation, which is, funnily enough, conducted by BirdLife Australia's Mornington Peninsula branch. Uh, And that'll be actually taking place in the Cranbourne bushland, followed by a tasty breakfast. Now, uh, if you don't want to get up early, then you can start the day at 10 o'clock and there'll be morning refreshments in the Australian Auditorium uh, then the presentations will begin at 10.30. There'll be things like an overview of Australian birds, evolutionary social history in connecting birds, animals, nature and people, uh, behaviour, ecology, colour and sexual attraction, status of the helmeted honey eater, uh, photographing birds, illustrating birds, bird habitat in gardens and Australian birds in art and craft. Now, the costs... <coughs> If you're going along to the 7.30 presentation uh, and uh, also then going on to the further presentations at 10 o'clock, uh, the cost is $80 for members of the Friends Group, uh, $90 for non-members, $40 students. If you're skipping the early presentation and just starting at 10 o'clock, costs are uh, members of the Friends Group $60, non-members $75, and students, $30. Now, you, as I said, you do need to register and pay via the booking form, and the booking form is available at rbgfriendscranburn, all one word, .org.au, or if you'd like more information, you can contact Amy, and her mobile is 0423-513-281. So 0423-513-281. Two eight one. So lots of activities around uh, Australian birds coming up. Fantastic. And we do have such a wonderful array. We certainly do. We're very lucky. Okay, let's go to uh, Jill, who's in East Brighton. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, panel. Um, yes, I, uh, I have a very simple question. Um, my, I've got, because I'm fructose intolerant, I have large, uh, large pots of chives, which are a wonderful substitute for onion and garlic. Um which sadly I can only inhale these days. <laughs> I can't actually can't actually eat it without getting a horrible stomachache. Anyway, um, so my chives are very dear to me, and they're covered in black aphids. Mm. I've been hosing them off violently every day, but they just seem to be back within twenty four mm. hours. It is rather ironic when people say you use the onion clan to discourage aphids around your roses and, <laughs> and your chives end up covered in black aphid. Uh, and it is common. It's, it's quite it's very common. very common. Yeah, yeah I've, had, I, I've had them on mine at different times, so uh, the black aphids. Yep. And unfortunately, I think your hosing off is probably your best bet because, I mean, you don't want to spray, obviously. No, because um, I eat them, you know, almost daily. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, I would I would just be, you know, well, you can pick your chives and wash the, the um, aphids off when you get to the kitchen if needs yes, be. But yes, it's good. There's often, they have even, you know, even doing it almost virtually, well, daily, mm. I'm finding that the poor old chives are looking pretty limp. They're obviously having all their juices sucked out of them. Mm. Yes. Um, and, yes, but look, you know, if that's all that can be done, I guess, yeah, well, which I was expecting was the well, case. Well, I was going to say, Jill, it, it might be a bit of a um, vicious circle as well because by watering your chives more... To, to blow off your aphids, mm. you're making the, the plants greener and sappier and that makes them more susceptible to aphid attack. So try growing your plants a bit harder. Try mm. try not giving them so much good living, not too much yeah. water and, and not too much fertiliser. And wash the aphids off after you pick the, the chives maybe. The, probably... the, I mean, the chives are just literally black with aphids if right. I don't do it. Yes. Start another patch somewhere. Throw, throw yeah. them out. Start yeah. again elsewhere, yeah. somewhere a bit drier Somewhere around the front garden. That's right. <laughs> maybe yeah. even I mean, in, in a pot so by your kitchen door even. Mm. Where yes, you can keep yes, an well, eye on them. Yes, well, I, um, I mean, I've grown them, you know, very happily for, for a couple of years now, and not had a problem. But oh. this year, they've obviously decided, you mm. know, they've discovered the, the pots, and yes, yes throw them out and start again. Mm. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Good luck, Jill. <laughs> Thank you. Okay then. Bye. Bye. Yes, it seems to be a specifically interesting black aphid that loves chives yes. for some reason or yeah, another. It is. Yeah. It's yeah. really weird. Yeah. I grew mine for, for years and then suddenly mm. the black aphids yeah. spotted them. But I think it, it, does, but... it does become somewhat cyclical. I'm not sure that it's there all the time. I mean, certainly they're not there all year round. No. Uh, they'll be there in a pain in the neck for a while, but then mm. they'll disappear. Uh, and some years you won't have them at all. So I think it's sort of the luck of the draw a bit mm. or what the weather patterns are doing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you've just got to grin and bear these things. Mm. But I was actually a bit serious if, if – Jill was to pick the chives and do the washing inside instead of wetting the plant mm. daily mm. to try and wash off the aphids. She's not uh, creating the environment. Yeah, she may not be creating the, <laughs> the humid environment in yep. which the aphids could thrive. Mm. And yep. you just wash them off in the kitchen instead. Yep. So that might be what I'd do instead of watering the uh, – or inadvertently watering the chives daily, which they don't need or want. Mm. Uh, it might work. Mm. I'd still start another patch. As yeah, well. I would. I would. <laughs> well, they, and they're quick growing too, so it oh, doesn't yes. take terribly long to build up a, a they're critical quite mass. Weedy once they get self seeding too. Oh yes, they oh, can. Oh yes. Yeah. End up with a chive lawn. Yep. Because <laughs> I ended up with a red spring onion lawn. Oh really? Yes. I won't say where I got the red spring onion seed <laughs> I think from. We can guess. Yeah, and now they come up everywhere. <laughs> Good heavens. Yeah, and it's one of those rotten onions that gets the bulbs in the flower head instead of oh. just flowering and going to seed. Uh, and, yeah, so I'm now mowing red spring onions. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and those perennial leeks, you've got to not let them go to seed, I tell Absolutely you what. Absolutely not. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they're quite nice to have around the garden for, for culinary purposes, but I let them go to seed one year and, by crikey, I paid for it later mm. trying to get them out. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's it's like those those wretched purple potatoes. You and oh, I I'm took still me trying years to get rid of, those to get rid of them. <laughs> yes. oh, never again. <laughs> they don't even taste particularly good. So I don't, I, I don't know why I was sucked into the purple potatoes in the first place. Well, we all thought presenting purple mash on a plate would look pretty. But... Yeah, except that it tends to be grey mash and it goes to sludge. I find. But anyhow, um, yes, there you go. Yeah, the, some vegetables are you know bordering on the weedy. <laughs> yes. Oh well. Simon, you've brought in an amazing collection oh, of yes. um, all I sorts have. of things. Yes, yes, I have. I've brought in some things. Actually, half of the plants I've just realised came from Stephen's nursery originally. So well, I could well have done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Um, I brought in some bamboos actually because I grow seven different varieties of bamboo in my in my garden, and, and I think bamboos are really wonderful. People are terrified of bamboo. You know, everyone got burnt back in the nineteen seventies yes. by by one species of bamboo, Philostachys aurea, which they thought that they could control by putting black plastic and white pebbles over the top of it. And now bamboo rhizomes from the running varieties will grow through corrugated tin they'll grow through concrete no worries yeah. I'll, I'll i'll actually i'll get back to that in a minute but the um there are five of uh, 1500 species of bamboo so and they can't only, all be bad <laughs> no exactly and only a third of those run so they're what we call the leptomorph bamboos that produce these long runners underneath the ground and take up a lot of real estate quickly but then the other two-thirds of the species of bamboo are pachymorph bamboos that means that they they don't produce these long rhizomes and they don't run they're clumping bamboos so um it's just a shame that this this one variety gave the whole family a bad name back in the back in the 1970s. So um, a couple of clumping bamboos I've got here um, are, are Fargesias, um, uh, which are from China, and these are the kind of bamboos that, that pandas eat. So these are sort of so mar- if a panda comes to visit, you're ready. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'll have something ready to go. And these are mountain bamboos. You know, they, they actually quite like the cold. They grow well in shade. Uh, how do they go in, in Melbourne, Stephen? Look, I've, I've sold um, Fargesias to different Melbourne gardeners and they seem to do quite well, yep. as long as they're not out in the hottest, bakiest spot They in don't the like exposure, do they? No, they, they like a little bit of shelter and shade uh, and adequate moisture. But uh, the thing I like about bamboo is if it's getting dry, its leaves roll and you know. Yes. And so you give it a drink and 20 minutes later it's looking fine again. Yeah, that's very you know, true. So bamboo's a good indicator plant if things are getting a bit dry because mm. uh, it does like a drink uh, but yeah they're fine the Fargesias seem to work quite well in mm. Melbourne um, and uh, they'd be a nice screening plant uh, you know along the south wall or something like that. Exactly yeah well I mean I grow these along the south side of a, a, a big row of gum trees so these are in shade for most of the day they get about half an hour of sun and um, this one's Fargesia rufa which is quite a compact little lap bamboo that only grows to about sort of seven or eight feet tall and um, the the culms, the stems, which are called culms, are really, really fine, very, very delicate and elegant and 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 feminine. And and again, the, and the way the leaves are presented is very, very lacy and soft and delicate. So it's a really elegant little bamboo for mm. a for a cold spot in your mm. garden. Um, and only about seven or eight feet tall, so you know it's it's most people could fit it into their backyard. Yeah, um, you could grow it into, in a big tub if you wanted to as well. Um, but you know, then you do need to make sure that it has enough water because otherwise, as Stephen yeah. says, the leaves will roll and it will look terrible. Right. Um, and then I brought this other one here. This is Fargesia um, scabrida, and both of those are provisional names, by the way, scabrida yeah. and rufa. But um, this is another one I got from Stephen's Nursery, and um, it's quite a bit taller. It's about uh, 10 feet tall, mm. 10 or 12 feet tall in my garden. I think it can grow a little bit bigger. and It's, it's a, a good one to cover a paling fence. It doesn't it go too much taller than the paling fence, but yep. it's it, it gets up to a... Exactly good, the right height. Yeah, just about the right height to yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And it's got slightly thicker stems there, um, what, half an inch thick at the mm. base, and very, very colourful too. Mm. I mean, it's the end of uh, winter now, just that the shooting season's just about to start. But when the new shoots of this come out, um, they've got beautiful salmon pink uh, bracts around them. And um, then when the bracts split underneath, you can see um, the blue, the stems are covered in a blue bloom, like a grape or a plum or something like okay. that. So it's quite striking um, when it's first. Um, coming out and shoots mm. um, but it, it's, a, it's only about my plant would be probably hmm, four or five feet wide at the base maybe five feet wide at the base so it doesn't need enough room but it, it won't run you know all of the all of the stems are together in a very tight little clump um, and this one has uh, n- nice sort of white 
uh, rings around the nodes, so it's got a real, you know, bamboo-y sort of look to it. I think it's a beautiful, elegant bamboo. Mm. You, do you grow this one, Stephen, oh, yes, as well? yes. Yeah. In fact, I've got uh, about four different Fargesias under whatever names they're supposed to be under. Uh, I've got Angustissima, which is the one that's being flogged around as the fortune bamboo, which mm-hmm. is quite a tall one. That, that'll get up to four metres. Uh, and I've used that to screen out my neighbour's uh, washing line. Uh, and it's done that highly effectively. Um, her smalls were never small. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, uh, and I've got a whole row of um, scabrida along the dog run fence to shelter the dogs, and they love it. They can run along under it because it sort of just arches over a bit. Um, and, yeah, I've got roofer in the garden in a couple of spots just as clumping uh, mm. spots. But, yeah, I love them. Mm. Um, and I'm probably more fanatical about bamboos than you are. I've probably got, I don't know, 15 or 20 different yeah, species in the you've garden. You've got quite a collection. Some of which are runners, and, yeah. and I just manage them. Yep. Um, one of which is a runner that I am not managing well at the moment and I think I'm going to have to give up and get rid of it. Mm. Uh, So, you know, some of them are thugs. Uh, But having said that, I've got the world's thuggiest bamboo in the garden, the um, Chinese walking stick bamboo. Mm. Um, Also the most beautiful. But it is stunning and and it's worth the effort. Yeah, it's so elegant. It is beautiful. It gets these swollen nodes so that it looks like arthritic fingers, uh, which doesn't sound romantic. But uh, And the Chinese used to make those sort of bubbly walking sticks yep. out of them uh, and it only came into Western cultivation sometime in the 1980s but I've actually gone into trench around it and I've pulled out eight foot long rhizomes mm. after 12, 18 months. Mm. So I'm still managing it. It's it's staying in spot and so far but every year I go around with a sharp spade and I it doesn't seem to go too deep which mm. is the one saving grace. Mm. But yeah, it would be a frightening bamboo to let loose in a, in a garden and just let it rip. Mm. Um, you'd need to get the bulldozers in after a while. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm a great advocate of bamboo. I love the fact they rustle. I love the fact that they, they move in every puff of air. Uh, uh, and they exude Asian elegance. Mm. They really do. Yeah. And they provide you with wonderful garden steaks. Yeah. 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 And yeah. food as well. Um, so th- this variety I've got here is um, Philostachys vivax, which is a, a big timber bamboo. This is I, only a little thin culm because I've yesterday I was thinning out all the little thin bamboos look better when they're groomed don't they yeah, yeah they I, do. I think you part of the problem them. is people don't do anything to them and yes. so they get really congested and they you've got dead culms in there and things at funny angles if you groom them and, and remove you know 30 or 40 percent of the culms so that you can see space between them they then they look really elegant and also some varieties have foliage right down to the ground and it's you can remove that up to a certain height so that you can see the see the culms yes. other varieties naturally um, you know, naturally don't have any foliage down at ground level, which is handy too. Mm. But so this one I'm holding in my hand, this is Philostachys vivax, and vivax means line, lively, and this is a really vigorous running bamboo. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. My ones I've are got about... the gold cane one in the garden at home that's starting to rocket away. Oh, look, another one prepared earlier. This one I prepared earlier. So I was cutting back both of mine, um, uh, sorry, thinning out the, the clumps yesterday, but um, um, it's actually really easy to control bamboo if you understand its growth habits. Um, and what happens is people tend to not do anything for five years and then freak out when the bamboos made it to the other side of the driveway. But if you understand its growth habit of these big running bamboos, it's, it's super easy to control. So what they do is um, in uh, February, March, they produce long um, rhizomes underneath the ground. And these are the ones that take up the new real estate. You don't know it's happening because it's all happening under the ground. As Stephen mm. says, it tends to be in the top six six inches of soil. Yeah. It's not much further down than that. Um 
And then what they do the following spring is uh, they produce upright shoots from the ends of those long rhizomes. So that's when you all of a sudden discover that your, your bamboos gone. You know, spread <laughs> 15 feet. Yes. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, those, those rhizomes under the ground will grow through concrete, they'll grow through corrugated iron, they'll grow through anything except air. Because in air, there's nothing to support them. They can't get any purchase with their roots. There's no water. And so really easy way to um, to control your running bamboos is just to dig a trench around them, as Stephen said. So these two timber bamboos I've got in my backyard are about oh, eight metres tall, um, but I contain them within a, a three-metre circle. So And all I've done is just dig down one spade depth around them, so they're, they're like a little island with a moat around it. And once a year in February, March, when they're producing those underground ground runners i just patrol the trees and if a rhizome sticks out into the into the um, moat it, it sort of goes air i can't grow in air and it'll it'll start to grow back down towards the ground and during that period i just kick them off and when they're when they're young and fresh they're like bean shoots they're brittle you just kick mm. them off yeah so um in that way it, it's really easy to control these huge timber bamboos that i've got in my yard and as Stephen once said to me he spends more time every year mowing his lawn than he does controlling his bamboos yeah, exactly i mean mm. you've got to look at these things and and you know how much labor's involved if exactly. it doesn't take a lot i mean i'd rather actually be controlling my bamboos than pruning roses personally but exactly. um, <laughs> Uh, no, so it's it's management. Mm. It really is, and and they are fantastic in the garden. I mean, I mm. do love the running bamboos for that reason because you you can end up with this lovely thinned cops of them yeah. where you can virtually walk into your bamboos mm. and that's when it starts to become really romantic and gorgeous and exactly. beautiful and I love it. Yeah. Um, I have to warn people though, if you do dig a motor around your bamboos, remember it's there because you can break an ankle, break an ankle. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> when you're wandering around the garden not paying attention. <laughs> Oops, and over he goes. And you'd probably get speared by a bamboo shoot coming up at that very moment as you fell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you could be found impaled on a bamboo later on. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so watch your moats. That's right. <laughs> Are all of them edible? Uh, no, and some, well, yes, but some varieties are more edible than others. So yep. this variety, Philostachys vivax, is known for having really sweet shoots. Um, but things uh, like if any of the listeners have been to Japan, they might have eaten the shoots of Philostachys edulis, edulis meaning edible, which is the giant morsel bamboo, the biggest bamboo in the world. And the shoots of those are huge. They can be um, sort of eight inches across at the base and 15 inches long. Right. And to make those edible, they actually boil them with um, the, the water that's been used to rinse rice before. It's okay, cooked. Okay. So the white starch in the water helps to draw these sort of bitter tasting chemicals out of the bamboo shoot, and then you can eat it. Okay. But, but some this bamboos p- are full of strychnine. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, uh, the Madagascan lemur, the bamboo lemurs, uh, they are like a panda. They only eat bamboo, and the bamboos in Madagascar are absolutely laced with strychnine, and these creatures somehow or another can deal with the strychnine in their completely bamboo diet, Um, and nobody's quite sure how they do it, because... Yeah, they are really, really poisonous. Wow, Uh, there you go. uh, But I'm sure that, again, if they were treated in a certain way, you you can deal with that. So, uh, But, yeah, strychnine is well known to be in some bamboos. So there There you go. go. Okay. Mm. Well, right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Word of warning. Okay, let's go to Sue, who is out in Warren North. Good morning, Sue. Sue, are you there? Hello. Sue. 
Uh-oh. We might put. I might have talked a bit long. Poor Sue's yeah, given she, up. She, she, she's given she, up hope. Well, she went Sue back on hold. <laughs> Sue, if you tea. want to give us another call, uh, we'll try and get to you nice and quickly. Yeah, so the other bamboo I'm holding here is the yellow version of the of the green timber bamboo, Philostachys vivax, and this one's called um, Aurea corlus, Philostachys vivax Aurea corlus, and it's got um, just random green stripes on egg yolk yellow stems, um, which is re- really nice. It's and a, it's beautiful. beautiful. It's, it's so beautiful. It is such a gorgeous bamboo. Mm. I adore it mm. um but yeah it's a runner but so far in my garden um, and my garden tends to be a bit on the dry side because i'm in sclerophyll forest and and what soil i have got is what i've created so there was no soil when i started whereas over where you are in trentham with all that deep spud country mm. stuff mm. um and so i do find even the running bamboos if i don't water them too vigorously yeah. they actually take years to get yeah. moving it's the same with me and where i live the summers are very cool and short and these mm. are adapted to hot humid mm. you know sydney type summers so they they just don't get out of control anyway mm. for me no. so. so so you know um, don't be scared of bamboos give, give them a try you mm. just need to plan well plan what species you're going to grow yeah. and, and do talk properly. to people who know their bamboos a bit i mean if mm. you're going to go to the one of the big barns or the general garden centers to buy your bamboo you you could well be putting yourself in in at mm. risk uh, or at least your garden i think at the the plant fair next week Stephen at bollebeck uh, bamboo creations will be there there are think specialist they could be, nurseries yes, yeah so you know it's a good idea to talk to people who've grown them know mm. them uh, and, and have a sense of what they're potentially going to do because mm. they are a bit of a specialist group of plants mm. and uh, yeah you probably shouldn't be buying them from just anywhere no no i do love the big black bamboo mm-hmm. it looks like polished ebony or mm-hmm. you know yeah. just and gorgeous. it's also a runner yes so it does have to be managed mm-hmm. people think black bamboo because it, it will often sit benignly for years then take off mm-hmm. and so you get lulled into a false sense of security mm-hmm. with it and then off it goes uh but it is it's a lovely bamboo mm. um i just wish we could grow more of the sort of subtropical and tropical clumping bamboos because mm. some of them have amazing colored columns and things mm. beautiful That's true and the last bamboo i brought in actually is um is a shrubby sort of bamboo it's a runner too but pretty well behaved oh, yeah. really um, it's called Indicalamus tessellatus, and uh, it's only about head high. It's only sort of six foot tall, but it's got the largest leaf of any bamboo. Um, and in uh, in Asian countries, they use these leaves for, for, for making dumplings. So if you've ever been into the, the Asian supermarket and seen on the counter um, these dumplings wrapped up in green leaves, that's in the leaf of Indicalamus tessellatus. Mm. So How I useful is that? Yeah. So the leaves are about, what, no, they're nearly 15 inches long and about mm. three inches wide. Um, and, yeah, they, they're great yeah. for steaming dumplings. And it's a lovely plant in the garden because its stems being very fine. It, the whole plant <laughs> tends to sort of arch over mm. with the weight of leaves. Yeah. Uh, and it will grow in really dark, shady corners. Uh, I've used it in some uh, – and where it's kept a little on the dry side, it just sits. It mm. hardly ever moves. I've got a clump that's been there, must be 10, 15 years, and it's mm. hardly moved. Uh, and yet I've got another clump in another part of the garden where it's a little better soil. Um, and it's made a colony, I suppose, a metre and a half, two metres across, and mm. it's been there 15 years or something. Mm. Uh, and the only thing I've done to it is occasionally dig some bits out to shove them in pots. But mm. you know, apart from that, I haven't really tried to manage it particularly. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good bamboo for small gardens. It's got a very Lush tropical look about oh, yeah. it, doesn't it? Yeah, which is great for Trentham. <laughs> yeah, that's right, absolutely. Yes. In the winter time. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, I can see Simon rushing around in his little leopard skin lap lap. <laughs> trees in Trentham. Right. Yes. Oh dear. Okay, let's go to uh, Evelyn, who's in Surrey Hills. Good morning, Evelyn. Oh, good morning. Thank you for your program. Um, I have uh, Mediterranean sweet orange, a blood orange, and also a kumquat. Mm. 
and it's got beautiful new leaves coming out now. Uh, last year I had a terrible time with citrus uh, leaf miner, I think it is, and I had to take off all my new growth. Um, my question is, I was wondering if there's a preventative measure I can take to avoid this. Not I'm, not I, I'm I don't know, no, I, I don't know, I'm afraid, Evelyn. Wouldn't know how to answer. Um, I, I know actually down the Diggers Club they're running, oh no, that's in Adelaide, I was going to say, they're having workshops with Ian Tolley, who's kind of the, the citrus guru in Australia, a very right. elderly gent now. But no, look, I'm afraid, I don't know. No, and the only things I can think of would be poisonous, and I don't feel the need to do that on any citrus tree yeah. that I'm growing. I was uh, wondering, would, see, would spraying um, um, eco-oil or maybe sea salt to strengthen? If it's a leaf miner, I can't see how the eco-oil would help, because mm-hmm. it's going to be inside the tissue of the leaf yes. uh, and the echo oil is only going to be a contact. It's a contact poison, yeah. yeah. So, um, I think I've got to just cross my fingers now, do I? Well, I mean, it might be. If you removed all the foliage last year, Evelyn, yeah. it might be that you've broken the life cycle of the um, the miner anyway and it might not come back this year. Oh, okay. I thought it came, I thought it, I got it because of the humidity yeah, well, a lot of these things are seasonally oriented. You know, you'll get a bad year because the weather patterns are appropriate to that particular bug, and the next year you'll have a different weather pattern, so it's not as bad. So mm. sometimes some of these things I live with, yeah. uh, I mean, things like um, cherry um, slug, yeah. for Here instance. Cherry slug. I mean, some years I get it really badly, other years I hardly get it at all. Um, it doesn't do any long-term harm to the tree. Um, I'm certainly not going to go out of my way to spray or deal with something like that. Um, so, you know, some of these things you just got to learn to live with, and as long as the tree's kept in good fettle, so you keep it well-watered and mm. well-fed and mm. all those things so that it, it's got enough oomph to keep it going through an yeah. attack like that. Um, I, I'd Just be, leave it. Yeah, okay. I'd be inclined to leave it. And, and, you know, if you do see any of it starting to come on again, we'll whip those bits off and get rid of them and just keep on top of it. The yeah. problem is, of course, that your neighbours are probably not doing that. Uh, and so they will be reinfecting you. Uh, they don't have fruit trees. Oh, if your neighbours have got no fruit trees, then you might be all right if, once you break the cycle a bit because it might find it hard to find your trees again. Yeah, but what they do have is bamboo. <laughs> and they're not controlling it and it's coming straight under your fence? Um, no, it's just newly planted. Well, hopefully I, it's a clumper. Well, hopefully, yeah, yeah, hopefully. And I've got a pleached Manchurian pears on that side. No, well, the pears will, will cope with the, uh, the bamboo, right? They'll be tough. Yeah. Um, but, yes, as long as your neighbour has, in fact, gone to the right source and bought a clumping bamboo, I would never plant a running bamboo along a boundary line. That's just so mm. unfair. Mm. Uh, but a clumping bamboo is perfectly safe. Okay, I'll have to ask her. Yeah, mm. yeah, find out what bamboo she got. You, and if she's still got a label, even give us a ring at some stage mm. and say, well, this is the bamboo she's planted. Are we all right? Mm. And, I mean, okay. if it is a runner, they might have installed a root barrier as well, which will keep it in check mostly. Mm. Yeah, I was a landscape designer, so hopefully they've done the right thing. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, Evelyn. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, next up we're going to uh, David in Cheltenham. Good morning, David. Hi, good morning, team. We've got a... Uh, we've got a very large um, purple um, magenta um, bougainvillea that's about, it's quite, it's very large, it's about 30 feet, the top is about 30 feet above ground level, mm-hmm. and it's been in for about 25 years, about 10 years ago we had it cut down to ground level because the pergola had to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, it come back and then we had a, a cherry picker mob come in and cut the top off it a few years ago, and... Um, but it's just gone berserk, and we really uh, need to get it 
seriously cut back, and we really want to know what time of year to get the, the tree people in to do it. Have you got have you got their phone number? <laughs> uh, I would <laughs> now would probably be a good time to give it a good hard cut because I mean we're starting to go into the warmer weather. We're not likely to get too many more frosts, particularly around suburban Melbourne now. Um, so if I wanted to give it a good hard cut, I'd do it now. But remember, when you do cut something as hard as that. It does invigorate it. So you, you've only got control of it for a very short time because yes. you've actually taken the biomass away. Um, but it's got a big root system under it and it's going to go nuts and it will be up and over everything again in no time flat. Yes, look, we're aware of that. And the only other option, of course, if, we can't, if we're not prepared to repetitiously yeah. um, get some um, helpful person in to do it, then the only other option is to get rid of it. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And so, and that would seem a shame if it's performing a useful purpose in other ways in the well, garden. Well, it's just magnificent. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, and, yeah. So, and, and it's got it's got three bee boxes within it, or mm-hmm. uh, on the pergola underneath the thing, and it gives them protection and stuff. Um, but it's not very easy to get someone who's prepared to come and do it. I don't blame them. Uh, Bougainvillea is such a thorny and and frightening beast. You've got to wear chain mail to do it. Yes. Yeah, and oh, it's so hard to hire chain mail these days, I find. Well, I don't think the last people will come back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're going to have to go through different tree surgeons over a period of time, ones that are a bit naive and don't realise what they're putting but, themselves in for. Well, that's true, and we could do it now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you could hack yeah. the bilio out of it now to be fine. And that right, also right. means that you're going to keep letting light in at the moment when actually the extra sunlight's worthwhile, and then the bougainvillea will start coming up, and as the warm or slash hot weather comes along, it'll actually be giving you the shade you want when you want it. Yeah, so it's not just the bougainvillea that puts the tree people off, it's the beehives too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cowards. Are they managed hives, David? Are they, do you keep them or are they just wild? No, no, mate. Look, there were three possum boxes there and the oh. the, the bees, the possums vacated one box and the bees took over. Look, they're a very gentle bee. The, the bees have been here for 20 years and mm. they've never stung us yet. And, and, and my wife used to uh, get up and prune the thing herself. And she's right standing right next to a beehive, and 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 but she's never been stung. And bees um, get used to you being around as long as you're around a lot. Uh, if it's like the European wasps, uh, if they have a nest in a well-travelled area, they get used mm. to people going past and they don't bother you. But if you trample into an area where the wasps have been living all on their own without any human intervention, that's when you get stung by the wasps. Uh, yes. So they get used to you being around. So as long as you don't sort of whack their, their hive and really annoy them, uh, they should be fine. Or you could ring your local apiarists, David, and have, the, have them come and take the bees away. <laughs> well, look, we, look, we like the bees, but look, we did. We did the, the, the kinder next door made a bit of a fuss um, because uh, there was a kid there with a bee allergy. Mm. Um, so we got an apiarist in the, to do the job. And he never came back. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was frightened he of the Bougainvillea. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he might have been. He came to the quote and then didn't turn up again. So um, we've left the bees and the kinder people have changed over the years many times. So They've maybe forgotten they're there. Yes. And well, look, you know, it's, the, it's almost silly to remove bees from the habitat because there'll be bees elsewhere and they fly in to pollinate things. So the kinder's going to get bees flying through it no matter what. Mm. Um, and certainly if they're planting any pretty flowers for the children, well, yeah, they're going to get bees. Well, and the bee, let's face it, these hives divide and they swarm from time to time. Yeah. Mm. And if they land in a tree in the street, we get the council in and 
like an eye pierced in, and you know, they're not a big deal. No, and I look, I've got a great soft spot for our bees. We need to be looking after them. We do, mm. we do, and it's fantastic for the pollination of our vegetable garden, too. Well, exactly, definitely. Mm. All right, thanks very much. Oh, hey, that's all right, David. I don't think we helped you at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, you did, because mm. now we've got to try and find a sucker. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, a right. discriminating tree surgeon, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. All okay. right, best of luck with that. Actually, that's a, a point, isn't it? I mean, uh, getting a good tree surgeon, a good arborist, yeah. is is really worth the money because you know there there are cowboys who own a chainsaw out there who oh, think that owning a chainsaw makes them a tree surgeon, and it just doesn't. No. And so when you work with a really good arborist, um, we, we work with a, the same arborist actually um, who lives up our way, a guy called Craig, Craig Lockins, and we love know, Craig. We, Craig is adorable. Craig yeah. is a great tree surgeon. Yeah, but he knows, you know, he 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 knows about the trees, and he mm. he loves the trees. He wants the best for the trees and um, he knows what he's looking at straight away and I think if you get an arborist who doesn't know what something is in dormancy yes. a deciduous tree and they haven't got a clue what it is just yes. get rid of them yeah yeah. Well, and that's the other thing too a lot of people who come in and prune trees for you will do what you want them to do mm. Craig will come in and say no this is what the tree <laughs> wants you to do um, so if somebody's worried about a tree because it's just big um, he'll say no look, that tree's sound it's perfectly fine it doesn't need anything doing to it you might like to lighten the load or thin the canopy mm. or something like that but he's not going to come in and turn it into a coat hanger uh, mm. and that's what you want with a tree surgeon Absolutely. he's got a, he, he's the professional you wouldn't go to your doctor and say no I'm not taking those pills mm. Mm. you know um, you go to the expert who can give you the proper information and yes a good tree surgeon or arborist uh, is worth their weight mm. Absolutely, really good and yeah. we're very lucky in the Masset Ranges to have Craig because he is a great tree surgeon mm. um, and he's also a nice guy yeah <laughs> you know so yeah lucky us so yeah, let's not exactly. tell anybody where yeah, he is <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh dear. You've got one more leaf there. I Simon. do have one more leaf. It's not a bamboo, um, but it is another plant that I got from Stephen. <laughs> yeah. um, this is Fatsia japonica, um, and it's one of the variegated varieties. Um, this one they just call variegata. Um, so Fatsia japonica is the Japanese aurelia, which, um, you know, is a really common house plant. Um, <clears throat> but although it will grow inside, it's much happier outdoors, yeah. and they'll grow pretty much anywhere yeah. as long as they've got shade. They'll, they'll grow on the coast, they'll grow in the mountains, inland. Um, and so they're another one of these nice plants is really good for creating a, a sort of lush tropical jungly feel, even in a dry climate or a cold climate or a hot climate. Um, and this variety, the, the variegated one, has got really subtle variegations. Mm. It's not just, you know, green and white. If you look carefully, there's there's several shades of pale uh, verdigris greens and cream, and it's really elegant. I used to hate variegated plants. I thought they were tasteless, but this is the one that turned my head. Good. So I really love this plant. We got you at last. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, in the old days, these, these you could only propagate them by cuttings, and so it was really slow work. Oh, and they are painfully slow. I think slow. when I bought this from you, that was the only one you had in stock yeah. at the time. Yeah, but quite now, likely, and I, I don't have them often no. because they are hard to propagate from cuttings and slow. But anyhow. They're, well, they're tissue culturing them now. And oh, a, bugger. a new variety I know has been brought in called um, uh, Spider's Web. Oh, from yes, North I've got America. a young spider's web in the garden. And it's beautiful. It's got a different kind of variegation. It's got stippling all over the white okay. stippling all over the surface mm. of the leaf. So it's a totally different kind of variegation. And I think once you get your eye in for variegated plants and learn how to use them, um, you know, they they do have sort of subtle. I'm on the hunt. There is two there are two others. 
I am told Stilt that somebody milk. in Tasmania has a gold variegated mm. one. And there is one in America called Camouflage, which is two shades of, well, really goldy green and mm. green yep. uh, that Dan Hinckley released. And I don't think I, well, I know the gold one's in Tasmania, so hopefully eventually we'll get it. But I don't think Camouflage has come in. So Okay. Uh, There's another one called Spilt Milk, which I'd really like a different oh. kind of variegation again. But all these varieties, are all those ones that they've given trade names, spider's milk, um, spider's web spilt milk, mm. camouflage, they're all actually old Japanese selections, 19th century yeah. Japanese selections okay. that have just been rebranded. So, yeah. But they um, are, they're great. So plants. that, yeah, brilliant plants. So I grow these right up next to a gum tree, the trunk of a gum tree. It's very dark, dry shade, um, and it, it just looks lush and handsome and lovely. And I think that's the best you can hope for in dry shade is nice, handsome foliage. Forget about flowers and yeah. stuff like yes. that. Yeah, unless so, you've got a, a frost-free climate uh, where you can grow clivias. It's about the... Yeah, that's, that's you know, the other There's thing. not too many other plants that give you a splash of flower colour no. uh, that will grow in dry shade. Hedicium, some of the nice torch gingers as well, the yeah, hedicums yeah. in Melbourne. But um, anyway, that's what my talk's going to be about, about next week at Bollebeck at the plant fair. I'll be talking about plants for dry shade. Okay, mm. excellent. That I, I think I think uh, under your your very shady areas, mm. that's where the uh, variegations come into their own yeah, because exactly. they light up that dark mm. um, corner. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I so, think that's very yeah. handsome loaf. It is. It's, yeah, it's really special, isn't it? I've, it's yeah. gone floppy now because I've had it in a vase for, uh, well, a couple of weeks, actually, um, just admiring the variegations inside. Yeah. But, um, yeah no, it's a great it's plant. And it's, what, you know, it's 15 inches plus across. Yeah, mm. yeah it's really tropical-esque, yeah. uh, even though the plant itself isn't. I mean, they grow it outdoors in England, for goodness sake. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's certainly not tropical, but um, it gives that look. Mm. And that's what I love about living in a cool climate, is we can get a tropical look. Mm. But in tropical places, they can't get a good autumnal look. Very true. You know, they can't so get true. that sort of look we can get. No. Uh, so we can have the best of both worlds because we can have plants that give us the tropical look, even though they're not strictly speaking tropical, but they can't do autumn colour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Well said, Stephen. Yeah, so there you go. So, yeah, I don't care if it's beautiful one day and perfect the next. I'm not living there. It's the curse <laughs> of the gardener to want what you can't have, of course, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, my dad lives in on the central coast of New South Wales and he grows beautiful gardenias and frangipani and he's not interested in them. He just hankers after my Daphne and my, <laughs> yes. you know, my uh, spring bulbs. Yeah. And... Well, my mother spent 20 years trying to grow a Bavardia at Mount Macedon, you know, so <laughs> you know, just the way it is. That's right. You know, and exactly. some of us never learn, in fact. You know, we just keep doing it. But uh, I love the American term, being in zonal denial. Zonal denial. Yeah, yeah. And, and they do. They're all trying to grow things that are outside their zonal area because mm. in America their, their climate's zoned which is quite useful um and yes you know so i'm a zone eight but i'm trying to grow you know zone 9.5 you know and and all that sort of stuff and it's that's what there's a great forum on the internet called gardening on the edge and it deals with exactly that it's mostly brits actually in their case trying to grow subtropical stuff in cornwall and yeah yeah so gardening on the edge um yeah it's good but it's it's good to see what people the lengths people Mm. will go to to try to push the boundaries of what they can grow in their garden by using particular microclimates with in the garden, you know, reflected heat or whatever, or by choosing particular plant selections from further up the mountain that takes a bit more cold than the ones at the base of yeah, the mountain. And, exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's all good fun. Yeah, it yep. is. It's great fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm pushing those edges all the time and sometimes losing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyhow, it's the best part about losing is then you have a gap and you can try something else. So true. True. Mm. true. So there you go. Simon, have you managed to get down to Heronswood and see the amazing sculpture yet? 
No, I haven't. You don't know about the gallery? No. Oh, the Sea Gallery. Yes. Yes. Um, I do know about the Sea Gallery, but no, I haven't had a chance to get down there yet. I was invited to the opening, but I couldn't get there. I was as well and couldn't get there either. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's Is it good? It's wonderful. Yeah. Tell us about it. Uh, Well, it's it's the centrepiece is this gigantic titan lily, you know, just just larger than life sitting there and and then around the base Mm. of it all is every conceivable um, uh, depiction of of, um, seeds and plants and seedlings and all their pollinators. Um, It's perfect for children to have – they'll learn so much just Mm. from wandering around and looking at all the different – I mean, there's there's small animals, there's insects, there's you name it. Mm. It's it's – Oh, sounds a great! Massive I'll, amount I'll have of work has gone into it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the old, the old, uh, well, the, the the three rooms that comprise the mm-hmm. gallery are just perfect. It's a little intimate space, mm-hmm. um, but one one area, well, one area is totally devo- devoted to the sculpture, of course, and it needs that space mm-hmm. for you to be able to walk right around it. But then you've got um, another room that's devoted to depicting not only all the various different heirloom vegetables that have come from heirloom seeds, um, and and they've got a glass wall that's backlit mm-hmm. um, with all different seeds mm. in, in like little glass um, wall tiles, mm-hmm. which looks stunning mm. to look at the different shapes and sizes of the seeds all mm. backlit. Mm. Just stunning. And then the third room is another little intimate space uh, where you can actually sit down and watch a couple of videos all about um, pollination and the sex life of plants. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a wonderful it, – it, mm. it is truly a gallery in the, in the sense of mm. that it is an artistic gallery, but it's, it's so um, educational as well and just perfect for, for children to go and, and have a look at. I can't wait to see it. Mm, yeah, I'll have you must to wait till I down. get back from Madagascar. <laughs> you will, yeah. You're heading off yes, in a week. Yes, in the week. So no, I won't be back here now until early November. So I'll be away the whole of October as far as 3CR is concerned. Um, and you, uh, you'll come back after I've left. No, yes. no, we. I think we might have one week together. All right. Well, that will be good. Lucky. Yes, because then you're off to Japan. Yep. Mm. <laughs> no, we're not. I've missed catching up with you. Yes, yes, I had a sense you did. Yes, yes. So, no, no. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'll be off to Madagascar next Sunday morning. Um, after I've done my bit at the plant fair, I'll be rushing off to catch a plane on Sunday morning. And I get back on Thursday. 31st of October, I think I actually get back. Mm. So, yes, yeah, so I've got a nice um, Halloween. sort of uh, enthusiastic band of, uh, of travellers going with me that uh, I, think, I think we'll all have a great time. So I'm sure I'm looking you will. forward to it. And uh, I've been having fun buying books on the flora and fauna of Madagascar because when I was there last year, I was talking to some of the guides and they have a dearth of written material there's just nothing for them i mean all these botanists and zoologists and things go in there study the plants and animals write a book about it and the book never ends up back in madagascar uh where it can be used by the guide so uh last year's tour group have given me some money amongst them and i bought the uh the orchids of madagascar we've got the the frogs and lizards of madagascar we've got the legumes of madagascar we've got the tree ge- generic flora of madagascar we've got a huge atlas of the climate zones of madagascar and their flora and fauna that work in there that q botanic gardens did um <coughs> 
the palms of Madagascar. I've got a whole pile of books I'm going to take over. And funnily enough, a book on Australian native plants for one of the guides who wants a book on Australian native plants. Oh, that's oh, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, and he's, he's a guy that I've used off and on ever since I first went to Madagascar. He remembers me from the mid-'90s when, okay. when Craig and I just went over as, as a pair of... Uh, raw tourists to Madagascar. And uh, so Patrice is going to get a book on Australian native plants with lots of pretty colour pictures in it so that he can see what our plants look like. So uh, so I'm now going to spread all those books amongst the travellers so that they can carry them for me because I'd be so overweight luggage-wise if I was to carry them all myself. Um, and we're going to donate some lovely books too. I think that's a great that's idea. Great. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. think it's really important because these people are so enthusiastic and they really want to protect their country and, and they're making a living out of being guides in the parks. And although some of them in some some of the parks have access to the books that are in the research centre. They can't take them out. They can't mm. use yep. them themselves. So these will be books that will be assets Field for the guides, guides. themselves. Mm. Yep. And so they'll be able to make use of them themselves, which is great. Good. Very quickly, we've got to get to a couple of callers. Right. We have uh, John in Hampton. Good morning, John. Good morning. Thanks very much for your show. We really enjoy it. Um, my question was pretty general. It was one, you were talking about variegation. Yeah. And we had uh, noticed... A variegated aspidistra some time ago, which yeah. we tried to find in nurseries and other outlets, but we've been unsuccessful. Yeah. Well, I must add, I must admit, I've got the variegated aspidistra in my garden at home, and I keep re- re- sort of thinking, oh, I must pot some of that. Yes. And I forget. <laughs> uh, so now you've reminded me. So I will start potting. So I don't think I'll have time before I go away. I've only got, I've only got a week and I've got so to So you've got some excellent. Yeah, I've got it in the garden at home. It's just a matter of me remembering. I have got some Aspidestra Milky Way for sale, which is one that has little white spots all over the leaves, which is oh, quite yeah, fun. Yeah. So I've got some plants of that in pots at the nursery at the moment. Uh, but I haven't got the classical old uh, Aspidestra Alata Variegata, I think it is, um, for sale. But I have got the plant. So it's just a matter of me remembering to pot some up at some stage. Excellent. Uh, So I will have it in due course. Uh, I would suggest you just stalk me, really, Uh, (laughs) uh, and and I will get it for you. Excellent. Um, Okay. We'll we'll keep that in mind and we'll make the journey out there. Good. Excellent. Also, I just wanted to second your recommendation for a good um, arborist because I rang in to you many years ago, a couple of years ago, with a problem with a big lily pilly that Mm. was um, looking like it was dying and we've had an arborist here for two or three years trimming it judiciously and it survived and this year it's looked better than it's looked for years and years and years. Fantastic. So, Excellent. And I think that was due to the arborist. Oh yeah, yeah, look, yeah. I'm sure. Either that or good luck. Yeah. <laughs> about a thousand gallons, gigalitres of water. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But thank you very much. Thanks, okay, John. Good on you, okay. John. Bye. Bye. And uh, very quickly, we're going to Jill from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Hi, Pam. Hi, Stephen again. Good morning. Um, Next Thursday, 7.30pm at Burnley Horticultural, 500 Yarra Boulevard, uh, we're having three speakers on nettles, mugwort and cardamom. So that should be fascinating. And Stephen, I just want to ask you, what aspect for a tamarillo Tree tomato tree. I've just got somewhere a... sheltered and sunny is generally it, uh, and well drained, but somewhere where you can give it plenty of water during the summer months so that you pump it up because anything oh, right. that has big leaves like that takes would, up an awful lot of water. It, would it be okay if it got a bit of westerly sun? Oh yeah, yeah, it should. But shelter from the winds is yeah. really important. Oh they... yes, oh this is yeah. perfect in yeah. front of the garage between the box oh, and the. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, another big bush. Yeah, okay. Should be fine. I mean, they, they do well around suburban Melbourne if you give them a nice sheltered aspect and you'll end up with lots of vitamin C rich fruit. Oh, well, I'll have pomegranate at one end and tamarillo the other of that Fantastic. bed. Yeah. Excellent. Thank okay, you. then. Thanks, Pam. Bye, Jill. Bon, bon... I think she was bon going to say uh, <laughs> Okay, very quickly, Simon, if anyone is interested in, in joining your next couple of workshops, mm-hmm. just how do they book? The easiest thing is to go to my website. So yep. just Google me, That'll Simon That'll give all Ricard. the information. That's right, yep. And that's the easiest way to do it. Just look me up on the internet. Okay, <laughs> and, and I'll just quickly give the dates again. The next one is October the 26th. And the following one is November the 30th. That's right, both Thursdays. Yes, so one for each month. That's right. Nice and easy. Okay, well, uh, that's all we have for everyone for this week. You have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Of course, coming up next, uh, we're going to have alternative news, but uh, we will be back again at uh, 7.30 next week. So until then, bye for now.